animal rights and a high profile trial. Hello everybody, I'm David Chister and welcome to the conversation. Uh, two animal rights activists are facing felony, burglary and theft charges and 10 years in prison in a case that goes to trial in early October. The incident dates back to 2017 when uh, in Smithfield, Utah, the activists went into a Smithfield food factory filmed the deplorable conditions and also rescued a dying piglet. Well, the case is now going to trial and one of the defendants is joining us today. Wayne Xiong is an attorney and co-founder of Direct Action Everywhere. Wayne, thanks for joining us. First of all, are you surprised that this is actually going to trial all these years later? You know, that's an interesting question. In any ordinary circumstance, I would say yes, because even the government is admitting the value at issue. And from their perspective is about $42.20 per piglet. And the FBI, dozens of agents, attorneys have been involved in this case for many years trying to prosecute us. But when you realize how much influence these multinational corporations have and how much this case is really about speech and not about what we did on that night for a baby pig, it becomes a little less surprising. Smithfield has taken a lot of hits through the years. Since you exposed the deplorable conditions, they've had to close down several facilities. And it seems like a lot of people in the community of Utah blame you and Paul, who was your co-defendant for somehow causing this, as opposed to Smithfield taking responsibility for their own conditions. What's the atmosphere been like in terms of getting ready for this trial? And what are you looking at in terms of potential jury? Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's it's been kind of a twofold response from the authorities and from folks who are powerful figures in the county. It's been very negative. Obviously, the county attorney, the sheriff, they all seem to want to put us in prison. But the reality is, a lot of the people I talk on talk to on the streets and just ordinary community members are sympathetic, and some of them confide that to us secretly and say, like, you know, honestly, I've been sick of this. I've been hearing stories about what happens inside to the workers, the pigs. I can smell the stench from miles away. My kids can't go outside because the smell is so bad when the wind blows the wrong way that everywhere we walk, it smells like feces because there are literally tons and tons of lagoons of feces all across Beaver County, Utah, because of what Smithfield has constructed next to these people's homes. Um, but it, it's going to be a concern for sure, given that one out of four employees in this county do work for this company. But at the end of the day, what we're going to say to them is, look, the company didn't do right by you either. They're shutting your, this facility down, putting you out of a job, not because of what we did, but because of what they did. Namely, continuing to engage in unlawful and abusive practice against animals and hiding it from the public. Take us back to 2017. What motivated you to go to this particular facility in Smithfield, Utah? And what were you hoping to try and show and and establish? We went to Smithfield in Utah because in January of 2007, 10 years before our investigation, the CEO of the company made what was a widely lauded proclamation. Um, The Washington Post and many other prominent national publications wrote about this, but they claim they're going to take mother pigs out of these torture devices called gestation crates. Gestation crate is a two foot by seven foot metal cage. It it almost looks like a claw in that it's got these gauntlet like devices that kind of grip the animal, prevent them from moving anywhere. And mother pigs will live in a crate like this for essentially five years of their lives without an opportunity to turn around or even step a few feet back or forward. And most people who see these things say they're gruesome. In fact, even a lot of livestock consultants and veterinarians who've worked for the industry for years have said, these are awful things that have to go away. Um, Temple Grandin would be one example, a prominent um, animal scientist who has been featured in many media interviews and publications because in addition to being 
a world-renowned animal science expert. She's autistic and has done some really great work on both disability and animal, and animal welfare. Temple Grandin is one of the many who's condemned these crates as torturous. And Smithfield was lauded when they said within 10 years, we're gonna get rid of these crates. We wanted to find out if that had actually happened. We had pretty compelling tips that that was not actually happening. And lo and behold, from the moment we walked into Smithfield's largest pig farm, Circle Four Farms in Southern Utah, we found row after row after row of thousands of mother pigs trapped in crates. You also found dead piglets and, and piglets that were dying. What was going through your mind in terms of actually trying to take the piglet? Yeah, you know, we, we didn't know what we were gonna see when we went inside, obviously. And some of the things we saw, and I've been an animal cruelty investigator for most of my adult life, shocked even me. Um, one example of this is just piles of dead piglets right beneath and under and beside their mothers after they had given birth next to living animals that were all crawling over each other. And even just from kind of a, a public health perspective, this is gruesome and disgusting because we all know after living through the last couple of years how dangerous disease is. And how when someone is diseased, and especially if they've died from disease, we have to be very careful about the spread of disease. Yet we saw pretty egregious violations of basic public health protocols. Um, we saw piglets that were trapped in the grates. You know, there was a piglet that had fallen into the manure grate that was right underneath the cage. And she had been born too early. So there were no appropriate facilities around her, including warmth. And even the grate underneath her was too large for her to walk. And when you have like a two pound baby piglet and a grate that is like a half inch to an inch wide um, hole in it, you know, baby pigs are gonna fall into the pool and get stuck. And so we found piglets like that. And, and the reason we ultimately decided we needed to rush one of these baby animals to veterinary care was because we concluded that she was starving to death. She was seriously injured and unable to walk, um, had no commercial value to the industry. And just as a matter of mercy for this one living creature, we thought she needed to see a vet, and so that's what we did. We took her to the vet. Now the courts have uh, are not allowing you to put in your sort of motive for all of this. They're also not yeah. allowing you to show your video because they say it's sort of too gruesome. Um, it seems to me that that would be a reversible error on appeal. But you're the attorney. Mm -hmm. You tell me. I mean, is this really a gross violation, and is this something you can sort of bank on if you're convicted to get out of this? Yeah, I think it is a gross violation. I am an attorney and I, I've litigated criminal defense cases all right under the Sixth Amendment to complete defense. You have a right to call witnesses. You have the right to confront the state's witnesses. You have a right to not only present exculpatory evidence, in other words, evidence that proves you're innocent of the crimes being charged, but the prosecution actually has a duty to turn it over. And this happened most recently with the Adnan Syed case that a lot of people heard about, the serial defendant. You know, he's out of prison now because partly because the prosecution did not allow him to present evidence that suggested he was innocent. So in our case, it's it's one of the most bizarre cases I've ever heard of. And I've talked to dozens of criminal defense lawyers, all of whom say the same thing. It's not just our video. We're not allowed to show any video shot by anyone of the conditions inside this facility. And usually it's the prosecution that is trying to seek uh, evidence and, and show video of an alleged crime being committed. And we have a bizarre circumstance in this case, where it's a defendant who's being accused of a crime, who's saying, I would like the jury to see this video of what I actually did. And we're being told we cannot do that because it could induce horror in the jury. This is a term the prosecution used in their briefing, that it may induce horror in the jury and therefore cannot be shown. And our response to that, well, if it's, it's horrible and it's so disgusting, people don't wanna see it and they want it to be stopped. That's even more reason it has to be shown because it shows very clearly 
that our intent on that night was not to steal anything or take anything of value from this company. Our intent was just to show people the criminal conduct of Smithfield and give aid to these sick and dying animals. On our Rebel HQ YouTube channel, which is part of TYT, we did a video about Curtis Vollmer, who's another activist with Direct Action Everywhere, who was simply trying to pass out flyers at an event in Utah. And the police started harassing him, even though he was passing out flyers about you in the case on a public sidewalk. So clearly there is a law enforcement aspect to not wanting any of this as well. Tell me a little bit about the trial, how many jurors are there? Where is this taking place? The trial is gonna take place in St. George, Utah, which is next to Zion National Park. It actually moved from the original venue, which was Beaver County, Utah, partly because of what happened to Curtis. Curtis was not only charged with disorderly conduct, merely for leafleting on a public sidewalk and being told that he couldn't be there. Not because he was leafleting, but because of what the leaflet said. Um, It was classic content discrimination and viewpoint discrimination, which is unconstitutional. The government cannot tell you you can speak, but only if you say what we want you to say. You know, they have to give you the right to say whatever you want. That's a basic principle of the First Amendment. But in addition to charging Curtis, law enforcement officers indicated to some of the actors there that they were going to be violently threatened and possibly even killed. And uh, the climate there is intense, don't get me wrong. And, and so when we reported this to the judge, and when the judge saw some of the survey questionnaires that were sent out to potential jurors and found that almost all of them had some ties to Smithfield, the judge concluded that we would not be able to find enough jurors who were unbiased, and therefore we had to move the trial to St. George, Utah. So it's gonna be 12 jurors, 12 jurors will decide my fate, and within a week and a half, two weeks, I'll either be sitting in a Utah state prison, or maybe I'll be on the show again talking about a groundbreaking (laughs) victory for animal rights. Yeah, we certainly hope it's the latter, and I would think that there's gonna be at least one juror who's gonna say, you know what, even if, you take the stand and say, yes, I took that piglet and I'm not allowed to say why. And the jurors are instructed to focus just on that. I would assume that one of them is gonna say, no, wait a second, this is this is kind of yeah. this is kind of crazy. And, and I assume you will take the stand, right? Yeah, I'm planning to take the stand. I'm representing myself and taking the stand because I think unlike in a usual criminal defense case, we're not trying to sow doubt in the jury. We're trying to inspire them to make a decision of conscience. We have been completely open about this case from day one. We've never hidden our faces. In fact, the only reason Smithfield and Costco even know about what happened is because we published our video footage in the New York Times, and that's gonna continue in trial. We, we believe in transparency and it's the industry that wants to hide misconduct in the dark. And the same judge that is not allowing you to show motive and not allowing you to show the video, that is the judge that is presiding over this trial, correct? That's correct, unfortunately. So look, it, it could be that this is as term, criminal trials go, that this is sort of structured in a way that could be stacked against you. But uh, look, we're all hoping uh, that at least there's one juror there who says, no, wait a second, there's every reason why you were there and that the damage was in fact not done by you to Smithfield, but Smithfield uh, done to itself. Um, look, Wayne, good luck to you, you're a, you're a Hoosier. And I grew up in, in Southern Indiana, you grew up in Central Indiana. Kudos Indeed. to you for taking the sort of background that you have in a life of turning into a life of activism. And I think you're shining a light on some very important things just by the fact that you're going to trial. Thanks so much, David. And, and, and right back at you. There are a lot of good Hoosiers in the world, and you're one of them. Wayne Shung, he is the attorney and co founder of Direct Action Everywhere. His trial in Utah starts October the 3rd. Canceling foreign debt. Welcome back to the conversation, everybody. I'm David Schuster. There is an intensified effort to help global South countries put money into alternative energy rather than paying back 
IMF uh, and World Bank debts and, and loans. And here to talk about this is Esteban Servat. He is the organizer of the Debt for Climate campaign. Uh, Esteban, thanks for joining us. First of all, tell us, I mean, the, the issue here is that northern sort of countries have exploited resources and contribute to most of the, the global climate change through emissions and that somehow therefore the southern countries should be owed some forgiveness. Do I have that about right? You have it right, David. You know, the global north has the greatest debt of all, which is the climate debt. The debt through colonization and enslavement of most of the world and the emissions that they have produced in the process of industrializing as countries, that they have a climate debt that they need to recognize. And the global south is victim of what is well known as a tool of colonialism that is called debt trap diplomacy, which is what you just described, the IMF, the World Bank, keeping these huge loans on the global south where the interest is so huge that we're never able to pay it back. And this is directly linked to the climate crisis. This is linked to the climate crisis because it's forcing the global south countries to keep expanding the fossil fuel industry just to be able to keep up paying the interest on these loans that are never able to pay back. Now in 2001, there was an example, I think, in Argentina, where the Argentinian government was saddled with incredible debts and loans that they were trying to sort of pay back. And it literally caused a political insurrection. People took the streets and things were restructured. And yet it sounds like those debts are coming back around for Argentina. Yeah, you know, I was there, I'm from Argentina, I was 16 years old, I was in the streets when we ousted the government and the austerity policies of the IMF. It was an example to the world, but 20 years later, we're back in an even worse situation. Uh, Right-wing President Macri borrowed a huge record loan of $44 billion from the IMF, the biggest in the institution history in the world. And now the new government, uh, a progressive government has legitimized that loan that was completely illegitimate. It was unconstitutional. Uh, the IMF broke its own statute to award it. And the government, instead of, uh, of auditing it, is actually uh, legitimizing it. And we're in the worst situation in decades, over 50% percent poverty. And the government is basically paying this loan by sacrificing the countryside, the communities with mega mining, with fracking, with offshore drilling, and the expanding fossil fuel industry that is one of the ways that they're able to pay back these loans. And the reason these loans were awarded in the first place was that Vaca Muerta, for example, would be one of the sources of, of dollars and fossil fuels to pay back. We hear arguments from conservatives um, that look, you know, if people agree to get a loan, if they agree to take on a debt, they should abide by those obligations and therefore there should be no exceptions for these countries in the global south. What's the response to that? Well, in Argentina, we say that loans are owed back, debts are owed, but frauds are not. And the reality is that most of the loans of Argentina, Latin America, Africa, the global south are illegitimate, often awarded to dictators, awarded unconstitutionally. Like in the case of Argentina, it was completely illegitimate, breaking the IMF's own statute to actually help Macri win the re-election. Well, he luckily didn't, but it was under direct pressure from Trump to help his buddy win the re-election with his record loan. So all of these things need to be audited, but the power of the IMF and the financial power is so big 
that no government dares to even audit this debt. That's why we need to create a united front against debt, like Thomas Sankara was calling for from Burkina Faso, and for which he was assassinated 35 years ago. We need to build a global movement that can bring together the countries of the global south, the workers, the climate movements, in order to build enough pressure and have some power of leverage against these powerful institutions that are ruling the world and leading us to destruction. You're joining us from Berlin, Germany, and one of those powerful institutions you refer to, the World Bank, it has its global summit coming up in October. What's the strategy in terms of bringing this to their attention and what's the reaction you've gotten so far? That's right, you know, we're building this global movement called Debt for Climate, connecting these dots and connecting how this debt trap colonialism and the climate crisis are connected. We started it this year, we had one global action during the G7 to bring visibility to this. And now the next mobilization will be starting during the summit of the World Bank and the IMF. And the goal is to keep mobilizing thousands of workers, uh, climate activists, uh, indigenous uh, movements to bring us together to connect social justice and climate justice and put pressure and build common sense, build um, uh, build a critical mass so that more and more of the public is talking about debt, is talking about, is questioning this debt, and is calling for debt cancellation to enable a just transition. Debt consolidation, debt issues, loans are not very easy for a lot of members of the public to sort of understand, particularly when it involves governments and what they're intended for. Um, so what is it though that, that the public can do uh, right now to try to help your organization or to somehow you know get on to this issue and, and join you in this fight? Well, we have a website, it's debtforclimate.org, and on social media, the handle is just at debtforclimate, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can write us at info at debtforclimate.org to join us. And we are mobilizing all over the world. Last, last time we mobilized in 24 countries, this time it will be more from the summit of the IMF and the World Bank all the way to COP. And depending on what country you are, what you can contribute is different. If you're in the US, there will be actions taking place in Washington DC, maybe elsewhere as well. And you're in a key place, the most important place in terms of voting power in the IMF and the World Bank, which is the US and the hardest place to make these changes. So we need all of you and any people that can mobilize or help bring other groups, labor movements and so on, get in touch because we need to come together. How aware is the IMF and the World Bank of, of these issues and, and what's been their reaction so far? Well, the IMF and the World Bank are always coming up with greenwashing mechanisms and they have come up with the debt for climate swap. That is usually a way that is supposedly canceling debt in order to take climate action, but it really isn't. When you look at the details, it's all about benefiting the global North corporations, continuing colonialism, and just decorative stuff, ornamental, not real change, and definitely not at the scale that is needed in order to actually, you know, to give you an example of what Debt for Climate is really calling for is the global South has trillions of dollars of debt to the global North and also trillions of dollars of fossil fuels in the ground. Many of the hundreds of carbon bombs, climate bombs like Vaca Muerta are in the global south and they're being exploited so that this debt can be paid back. So if we could allow to cancel this, the global south debt, trillions of dollars of fossil fuels could be kept in the ground by enabling the financing of a just transition. So in other words, merely by accelerating um, the uh, concerns about uh, greenhouse gases and taking steps to try to control climate change and to use renewable energies, just doing that in a sense could conceivably make it easier on the global south and this entire issue. 
Well, the thing is that things are not getting any better. And contrary to the Paris Agreement and all the commitments that governments such as Biden are signing, the reality is that the fossil fuel industry keeps expanding, fracking and offshore drilling keep expanding. And mostly, primarily, the global south is the front line of that. So no real change will come until and unless we first cancel the debt and enable these countries to, to take away this political and financial stranglehold that keeps us ex- ex- uh, extracting primary goods to ship them to the consumption cycles of the global north for the last couple hundred years. You mentioned the Biden administration. How strong or weak are they in terms of advocating and supporting you on this? And who are the other uh, you know, countries around the globe that have leaders that are aware of this issue and are taking a stand? Well, definitely nothing good and nothing real is expecting from Biden. Uh, but maybe from the more progressive side in the US, some hope will come that these issues will be really taken up. Uh, we think that Biden is is just one more of the corporate greenwashing uh, puppets in the US. Then elsewhere around the world, there is a very hopeful development with the election of Gustavo Petro in Colombia, who is already from the first inaugural speech taken up the demands of therefore climate and is a likely champion of these ideas. And we're hoping that more and more voices will come up and take these ideas into the mainstream and uh, call for debt cancellation because it's the, it's the low-hanging fruit for climate action. We could, uh, we could achieve the biggest victory to date in the climate movement, in the climate action that we need. And also it's a no-brainer. We are headed into a debt crisis that is starting in the global south. And the first thing that needs to happen is to cancel these debts that are illegitimate, that are a knee on the neck of our countries to benefit the whole of the world by, uh, by leaving trillions of dollars of fossil fuels in the ground. And who are your most uh, highest profile advocates in the global south for all of this? Well, you know, this is a very young campaign that started this year and it's really started in a horizontal, uh, you know, grassroots level. So we are not really, it's not been in our interest to find stars, but actually build it from the bottom up and engage a lot of labor unions, climate, social movements, indigenous movements. And there has been some very visible faces like Georges Monbiot that have been very helpful in supporting us. But we are not desperately running after famous figures yet. We know that the time will come and they will come by themselves. We just need to keep doing our work. And just to clarify one thing, I think the statistic is something like 71% of all of the global climate emissions, greenhouse gases come from, was it like just 100 countries? Mostly in the global north? 100 multinational companies, if that's the the paper that you're citing, yeah, multinational corporations, yeah. And most of the emissions historically have been done by the global north uh, countries, you know. The global south accounts for about 8% of all historic emissions, and yet we are paying the the worst consequences of the results of this development. Are you an optimist on all of this? Yeah, well, the fact that I'm fighting makes me optimistic. As long as you're fighting, no fight is lost. Well, yeah, I guess you have to be an optimist to take on something like this. And uh, there is a lot of reasons to be pessimistic, given the way that the global south has been treated by multinational corporations and by countless uh, countries in the global north for decades. But nonetheless, uh, Esteban Servat, um, uh, he joins us uh, from Berlin, Germany. He is the organizer of the Debt for Climate campaign. And Esteban, good luck to you. We'll be watching for you the next couple of weeks. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us and for supporting Debt for Climate. And one more time, the website. Yeah, it's debtforclimate.org and the social media is at debtforclimate, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
debtforclimate.org. Esteban Servat, thank you so much. And that'll do it for this edition of the conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks. I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.